Welcome to Flippening, the first and original podcast for full-time, professional, and institutional crypto investors. I'm your host, Clay Collins. Each week, we discuss the cryptocurrency economy, new investment strategies for maximizing returns, and stories from the front lines of financial disruption. Go to Flippening.com to join our newsletter for cryptocurrency investors and find out just why this podcast is called Flippening. Clay Collins is the CEO of Nomics. All opinions expressed by Clay and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Nomics or any other company. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. My guest today is Dhruv Bansal from Unchained Capital. You might remember Drew from episode six, where we discussed the top soundbites and talks from Coindesk's Consensus Invest Conference. Drew is the co-founder of Unchained Capital, which offers individuals and businesses loans against their Bitcoin collateral. This is an interesting service because it lets you take out a cash loan on your crypto assets so you can benefit from your Bitcoin wealth without having to sell your favorite investment. In essence, Unchained Capital is a service layer available to users of the Bitcoin blockchain and is part of a growing trend towards making traditional financial services available to crypto asset holders. And Bitcoin holders seem to be really excited about this trend. On Twitter the other day, someone wrote the following about crypto asset backed cash loans, quote, I will never have to pay capital gains taxes again, ever. This is literally the best thing to happen to crypto since Satoshi wrote the white paper in 2008, end quote. In this episode, Dhruv and I discuss, one, why someone might take out a crypto asset backed loan. Two, the tax advantages of borrowing against versus selling your Bitcoin. Three, the fact that 60% of Bitcoins haven't been spent in the last year and how this discovery led to the formation of Unchained Capital. Four, how Unchained Capital's product offering is similar to and different from other crypto loan products. Five, the fact that most of Drew's customers make interest-only payments against their loans. Six, the parameters around Drew's offering, including loan interest rates, loan terms, fees, etc. Seven, why Unchained Capital doesn't do credit checks. Eight, how Unchained stores collateral and how they let you monitor your collateral while it's in their custody. Nine, how Unchained Capital treats forks like the recent Bitcoin Cash fork of Bitcoin. And ten, what Drew envies about providers of traditional loan products and what he thinks they envy about his company. We also discussed Drew's views on his industry and where he sees his product roadmap evolving over time. Please enjoy my conversation with Drew Bansal of Unchanged Capital. Drew, what's the path that brought you to founding Unchanged Capital? So I guess Unchained Capital really starts with the discovery that Joe and I made that 60% of Bitcoin isn't being spent. And that struck us as a tragedy. If Bitcoin is going to be useful, it's got to move around. So we decided to build products that could target people who are holding those assets you know, because they want the long-term gains. But can we solve problems for them today? So we started meeting these people. What are their problems? Amongst those options of what to build, lending really emerged as the leader for us for a few different reasons. It's probably very simple to model, easy to understand. We can accept Bitcoin as a form of collateral. We can extend you a loan backed by that collateral. That's a pretty simple and hopefully easy to implement idea, so we thought. It's also something that customers demonstrably said that they wanted. We talked to people and they thought that this was a really good way to defer tax payments, to deal with volatility in the market, to free up some of this asset class that they're sitting on that's a little frozen for them. Hold up, this is Clay, and I wanted to cut in here. Drew just mentioned three crypto loan benefits. 
which are deferring tax payments, dealing with volatility in the market, and freeing up your assets. I want to break down the first benefit that Drew mentioned because I think it's important. So the first benefit that Drew mentioned was the ability to defer tax payments. Let's say you bought Bitcoin and it goes up eight times in 10 months and you want to use those gains to buy a car. If you sell those tokens in less than 12 months, you're subject to short-term capital gains rates, which are high. If you instead take out a loan against your Bitcoin, you can still use your Bitcoin wealth to buy a car and sell your tokens after 12 months so you can instead pay long-term capital gains rates. Alternatively, if you've taken out a loan against your Bitcoin, you can wait a few more years to sell those Bitcoin because you believe they might go up a lot more over time. And when you sell those Bitcoin, you can use a small fraction of that sell to pay off the principal of your loan. Okay, back to Dhruv. But it just felt like from a combination of perspectives, the best first financial service to target to start solving that problem of static unspent Bitcoin and start to give crypto holders some degrees of freedom. Do you think you would be participating as a lender or would you have a business that had roughly the same characteristics minus the blockchain part if it weren't for the birth of cryptocurrencies starting with Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper? Would you be involved in financial services? No way. I I can't imagine it would have happened any other way. Not to say that I don't think financial services are interesting or valuable. It just wasn't something I had a lot of experience in. There were alternative lending companies being started, and that industry grew really rapidly, and it was really exciting for a while. Hey, this is Clay again, cutting off Drew from the editing booth. You might notice that in literally every single interview I've done here on Flippening, I've asked folks if they'd be involved in financial services if it weren't for blockchain technology. This is the one question that I ask everyone. And in all cases, they say no, they wouldn't be involved in financial services if it weren't for blockchain technology. So far now, I've interviewed two hedge fund managers, a liquidity provider, and Drew. I've also done some news roundups, and every single guest has said that blockchain and distributed ledger technologies drew them into the financial system when they otherwise wouldn't have been involved. I think this is important because it shows how disruptive technologies can draw innovators into previously stale sectors that otherwise were uninteresting or simply excluded participants that didn't come from specific locations or had a specific pedigree or background. Back to Drew. You know, I might have thought, hey, maybe I can use my skills as a data scientist to do well in that space, but I don't think I would have made the choice. It's because I found Bitcoin and blockchain so fascinating, and these products were so necessary that I found myself having to think about them and go out and build these things. So let's say someone's considering taking out a loan against their BTC holdings. When someone assesses whether or not to use Unchained Capital, Competitors could be apathy, right? Like not doing anything at all. Second, you know, something like salt lending or three, some kind of interest earning custody, like maybe just taking their money and putting it into a crypto index fund. Why do you think with those, you know, potential competitors in this place are like alternative paths, right? Not doing anything, using a direct competitor of yours, or maybe investing in a crypto index fund or something like that. Why would someone use unchanged capital. Right. Uh, Maybe I'll answer that in two parts, like why borrow in the first place? And then if you're going to borrow, why choose unchained? So I think you're right. Like probably the biggest competitors that we have to our loan product are ignorance and apathy, right? Not knowing that this is a financial degree of freedom, not caring perhaps for a variety of reasons, or honestly being overwhelmed. Why borrow? It's demonstrably been the smart move. 
given the price history of Bitcoin. Yes, there have been down periods. There have been windows in which someone who sold might have been slightly better off. But in general, given the rates that we charge, given the appreciation of Bitcoin, given the reality of capital gains taxes, net net, if you're thinking of selling, it's almost always better to borrow. I know there can be potentially tax benefits to taking out a loan on your Bitcoin versus selling that Bitcoin and using those funds to purchase something, right? You've got capital gains. Maybe someone wants to defer, like they want to translate what would be short-term capital gains into long-term capital gains eventually, or something else. Can you describe what you've heard from your customer base in terms of their tax-based motivations for using a loan product? I would say when it comes to tax, this could be a seasonal aspect. Most of our loans have been in the last month or two as we've sort of launched publicly and been growing. Certainly tax behavior is important at the end of the year, but tax payments are not due until April or October. So I certainly estimate a greater interaction between the need to borrow and in particular the desire to either pay for tax consequences or avoid them happening around those times. So far, the most common use cases for our customers have been investment. So typically wanting to buy a home or a real estate property, something that's you know more physical, powered by their very digital Bitcoin, or wanting to take a position in a company or honestly another asset class, whether that's stocks and bonds and traditional finance or even additional crypto tokens. But by and large, it's making investments. I think people, again, that speaks to the desire to get a return from having Bitcoin in the short term while still being able to hold it for the long term. So there are no restrictions to what people can do with the money. Obviously, there are things that are illegal and illegal, but there's nothing in your documents that say you can't take these funds and use it to purchase additional Bitcoin, for example. Yeah, let me be careful as I answer this question. So certainly there are obviously things that it would be illegal for us to lend for. We do ask customers the stated purpose of their loan. We do have to run customers through KYC AML procedures. Clay again, to define KYC AML procedures. So KYC stands for know your customer. KYC is essentially the process of a business identifying and verifying the identity of its clients. This is a legal requirement in many jurisdictions, and the term is also used to refer to bank and anti-money laundering regulations. AML stands for anti-money laundering. AML is a set of procedures, laws, and regulations designed to stop the practice of generating income through illegal actions. Apologies if you already knew this. Back to Drew. We do have a sense of what our customers' income and net worth within and outside of crypto is. So we're in a position to judge where did these customers get the crypto from? What are they planning to do with it? Is that safe? The chief decision criteria we use are obviously, first and foremost, legality and appropriateness. Can we lend to this person? And then second, is it appropriate for us to do so? Is it safe in the sense that is this person going to be able to meet their interest payment requirements? If the Bitcoin price collapses, which is something we can talk about, how we deal with price volatility, do they have other assets that they may be able to use to cover their obligations? We're unlikely to lend to someone who is borrowing against the full capacity of all their Bitcoin and has no other sources of income. That feels unsafe to us. But at the same time, we do obviously recognize crypto as a real asset class, and, and that is important. In terms of what they're doing with it, I don't think there's too many verboten things that they cannot do. I'm not involved in the day-to-day loan operations, and so someone else would have to speak to that. We do have folks who have borrowed to buy more crypto, but I think we probably take it on a case-by-case basis. If you are, from what we have learned about you, if you are someone with assets, you are a sophisticated investor, if you're choosing to leverage, that's okay. If you're someone who doesn't have a really great income, doesn't have a lot of assets, and is wanting to leverage your crypto, we may just not accept that kind of risk. 
I can give you an example from my personal life. I'm looking at potentially investing in a crypto hedge fund. Unfortunately, many crypto hedge funds don't actually take BTC. So I would have to sell my BTC, get USD, you know, generate a potentially taxable event, and then take that USD and put it into the hedge fund. I would rather just give you guys my BTC, take out some cash, give that to the hedge fund, not trigger a taxable event. Obviously, I'm going to have to pay for gains and hopefully gains that would come from a hedge fund that I'd invest in. But I just don't want to generate that taxable event in the first place. Do you have customers that sound like that? I don't know that I have a customer that specifically has borrowed in order to invest in a crypto hedge fund. But yeah, it is certainly an example of borrowing against Bitcoin to make a leveraged investment against another crypto asset, right? In this case, indirectly through a fund. But yeah, that is certainly a use case. Though again, it is more direct forms of investment like buying homes and taking positions in actual companies and similar that has tended to be the more common use case. I can definitely see that you know if you're getting paid primarily in in a cryptocurrency and you still need to operate in the USD world, you have a few options and this is probably your best one. What are maybe two to three additional use cases that you could share with us? Yeah, so mostly these use cases that we've discussed so far have been the consumer use cases. 30% of our borrowers are businesses and they do include, for example, miners. Our very first borrower ever was a miner right here in Texas who wants to disconnect their own needs for constantly having to upgrade each cycle, you know, their mining equipment from whatever the price happens to be doing, right? It's you want to sell when you believe the price is at a local maximum, not necessarily when you're forced into because of a difficulty adjustment, having to roll out more hardware. Clay, again, to explain the use case that Drew just mentioned, because I think it's important. If you're a crypto asset miner, you have to deal with periods when mining suddenly becomes more computationally difficult. During these times, you might want to purchase more hardware to stay competitive. But increases in mining difficulty don't always correlate with increases in crypto asset prices. So if you're paid in Bitcoin, for example, you might want to purchase more hardware when mining difficulty increases, but only sell your Bitcoin when you believe the price is at a local maximum or when selling makes sense from a tax planning perspective. That's why a loan would make sense in these cases. Back to Drew. So that's kind of a nice operational degree of freedom for his business. So miners are definitely one category of customers for us, but also funds. There are several funds which own cryptocurrency, not just crypto investment funds, but more like private companies, shall we say. One of the interesting use cases is funds amongst our business borrowers who are capitalized perhaps by some original founders or individuals purchasing of Bitcoin early, but now are sitting on several million dollars in cryptocurrency and thinking about what to do with it. And so oftentimes in making investments for equity in companies that they believe in is an interesting option. And so we allow them to do that while still maintaining their crypto assets. Essentially, this is another form of leverage, just leveraging outside of cryptocurrency into other forms of assets like private company stock. We've also got someone, this is a use case I really like, we've got someone who's just flipping houses. They're sitting on a lot of Bitcoin and they're using Unchained to take out money to buy houses, invest in the repairs, and then sell them at profit. So again, I think a lot of these use cases, ultimately their end goal is income, right? Some kind of investment that makes money powered by this asset class that I believe in long term, but isn't really giving me any short term returns. So I addressed a little bit about you know why one should borrow as compared to selling you know, it's demonstrably the better decision. The next question, I suppose, is, well, why borrow with Unchained? For a while, we were the only option in market for probably the last half of 2017 when we were lending. But now there are 
actually other options. Salt lending in particular is probably the most famous and well-known. I think of them as it's really nice to have a real competitor operating. For a while, when we were working on this company in 2016, there wasn't too much around crypto lending out there. And we felt like we're being pretty contrary. And that's turned out to be great because now that there's Salt and a few other firms out there, we're feeling pretty validated that, hey, this is a real market that a lot of people are recognizing. And Salt has a lot of talented entrepreneurs and they've got a great team. I will say this, I tend to think of them as a marketing first company, whereas we are more of a product first company. And that is just two different ways to think about you know building good products and good services for customers. Salt, of course, famously did an ICO. They have a utility token. I think it's done very well. They raised a lot of money based on, on that basis. And they're going to go use that, I presume, to fund loans and to power their business. Whereas we kind of started by first building our product, getting into market earlier, getting real feedback from real customers and trying to grow in that direction. So a little bit of a distinction there. I also would say as a borrower, divorcing myself from working at the company when I just think about like, being a customer of a lending product, the things I'm looking for are simplicity and security and safety. This is now, I mean, my personal bias with the attitude that I hold around technology, I don't like the implementation that SALT offers in terms of managing funds with smart contracts. It sounds very sexy, but to me, it's a little frightening. As a person who writes smart contracts, I know what bugs are capable of doing. Their code is not open source. It's difficult for me to trust that what they say is happening is really happening. Their marketing, while very omnipresent, is not clear in regards to certain key facts, like do they originate the loans or not? Will my funds be automatically liquidated or not? Part of what I find frustrating is that the community around SALT is often at a loss for actually knowing the answers to these questions. There are some funny blog posts where people have gleaned out information about how SALT may actually be working right now. That strikes me as just not transparent enough, whereas we're very much an opposite kind of company. We are transparent almost all the way. We tell you exactly what our terms are. Our contracts are absolutely open source and simple. And we show you the assets that we hold on your behalf. The value proposition our companies offer is is very identical, right? Getting US dollars in return for holding Bitcoin or cryptocurrency as collateral. We've just chosen very different approaches and implementations. I prefer ours because it's simple. There's less code. There's more transparency. But I can appreciate what SALT is trying to do. I think they're trying to be more of a platform than we are. They're trying to have a little bit more scope in that regard. And I think that's really cool. I think that's important long-term. It's important to be able to service the long tail of the market. But that is not really where we're oriented. We cannot offer somebody a $500 loan. We can only work with customers who have enough crypto assets to sort of make working with them cost-effective for us, but also those are the customers that have the biggest pain points. And truthfully, there aren't that many of them in the country. And we have gone with, therefore, more of a direct, we originate loans, we're building a platform where you can find lenders and then you can get loans. That's a big distinction between our two approaches. If you think about a lot of, I don't know, potential solutions in this space, you could have probably some companies that take a more services business approach to it, right? And I think other folks might go out and build infrastructure, right? Maybe they'll build a protocol, they'll issue a token like SALT. So when you think about, you know, a services business versus an infrastructure business, it sounds a little bit more like you guys have gone the services route. Do you think this will ever turn into a protocol or that you'll issue a token? And is that for engineering reasons or other reasons. In other words, if let's say six months from now or a year from now, or say even tomorrow, you wake up and you have an insight that 
indicates to you that the problem you want to solve is best solved at scale with a protocol, would you build that or not? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's something we deeply think about as well. I mean, honestly, when we were contemplating this company last year and starting to build it late last year and early this year, we didn't feel that there was enough of an ecosystem for us to just build a product and just throw it out there and just hope that people would lend and borrow and everything would be copacetic. It struck us as money is a very trust-oriented product. You need people and you need real people behind it. You need to feel like your money is safe. You need to be able to call people. There needs to be a human level of interaction if you're going to earn that trust. And so there's a sort of necessary services component. If this were a more mature industry, there might be layers in which there are companies making products and they're being resold by, in tech, we often call them VARs, value-added resellers, people who are closer to the customer in the value chain. Because of how nascent the ecosystem is, none of that's around. We can't just rely upon a group of seasoned loan officers who know how to give crypto loans and then sell them our product. Over time, though, that may start to change. And I think our company DNA is very tech and big data and infrastructure heavy. That's really where we shine. And it's been interesting for us to really limit that scope and really, really focus down on a simple, direct, laser-focused product and then support it with really, really good customer service. I can envision over time as maybe other folks get involved, and this could be anybody from regional banks to global mega banks, right, that decide they want to be part of crypto lending, that it's okay. It's a great way to make a return, that it's a real product, that they can do it safely and cheaply, and wanting to use our software that we've developed to do that. That's an interesting possibility for us. We're certainly exploring it with a few channel partners like banks and exchanges right now. And I could very much see us moving in that direction, but we wouldn't want to compromise the service that we have. It's one of the things our customers genuinely really appreciate right now is that in the world of crypto, which is often fly by night and chat me over telegram, like we are talking to you on the phone or meeting you in person or making sure that you feel taken care of because we are trying to win your trust. So I think if there were ways where I felt that the customer experience for the products that we're building could remain as good as it is now, yet we could not have to absorb some of the scaling costs associated with having a large services business, we would very much be excited about that. Part of it just depends on how the ecosystem develops, I guess. You also asked about a token. If you woke up tomorrow, six months, a year from now, you're like, you know, the best way to do this is with an on-chain solution. We're going to turn into an infrastructure company. Would you do that? I mean, I kind of deny the premise there. I, if you're dealing with dollars, some part of your organization has to live off chain. It's just the way the dollars work, right? But that doesn't mean that we haven't thought about tokens. There's no need for a token to power the product that we have in market today, which is you give us Bitcoin as collateral, we extend you a loan in dollars. We use the blockchain to escrow the collateral. It's very safe. It's a multi-sig, cold storage wallets, etc. But we're not like putting any of the logic into the blockchain or anything like that. We're keeping it very separate. And so we don't really need a token to implement the product that we've got right now. It's very simple and direct. The token that is just a collateral. And that's the reason we didn't do an ICO. In the future, I think we would be interested in a certain class of token. Oftentimes, lending companies like ours, as they scale their loan book, they're able to securitize it. So they're able to you know, resell it in bundles to various investors who can evaluate not just any individual loan, but more the characteristics across the entire loan bundle of what they're buying. And we think a token is a great way to extend an offering like that. 
that if you bought you know the Unchained Capital token, you would have access to an income stream based on the interest payments from our loan book. And essentially, it would be a way to very cheaply securitize the loans that we're making. And as well as, of course, raise lending capital for us to make those loans in the first place. Investors in that potential future token could look at our existing track record. It could be a really financially informed decision and not perhaps like a gut, hey, I just love this ICO, I'm going to buy it. Like That's always been our goal is to to make a justifiable reason to invest in this token. One of the challenges, and though, in bringing a token like that to market today is that it would almost certainly be viewed as a security. And we think that's fine. We're not afraid of securities, but it means that there's a certain infrastructure for handling securities as tokens that needs to be built. And people are building it. There's a team coming out of Overstock at T0, I believe. And there's another team out of Toronto with Polymath. These are both networks, as far as I understand them to allow for the exchange of security tokens, which are actually securities. So dealing with investor accreditation, dealing with the various disclosure rules that have to be present. So somehow they're going to help solve those problems so that they can bring the liquidity that people like about utility tokens into the classes of investment that the government is going to class as securities. So I think if those things were to become real, we'd be pretty excited about releasing a token which was a security, which functioned kind of like a bond in that it bared a rate of return based on the performance of the loans that we're making in market. Do most borrowers make payments against the principal or are they primarily making interest-only payments? Our loans are structured right now that when you borrow, you make you only have to make interest-only payments, that the entire principal repayment is done as a balloon payment at the end of the loan. Customers can, of course, prepay if they elect to do so. If they want to close out their loan or pay down part of their principal, they're welcome to do so. That's also a great way that we deal with volatility. So if we have to do a call for additional for collateral maintenance, one option is you can give us more collateral, but another option is you can pay down some of the principal. Those are both ways to handle a decrease in the price that we offer to our borrowers. But in general, I would say that we haven't had sufficient time to see the long-term behavior. So some of our borrowers have taken loans up to three or four years now. So there just hasn't been enough time to see how that's going to play out. What I have seen is amongst the borrowers that have taken short-term loans, so three months or so is our shortest loan. And so we've now been in market long enough where folks have taken out those loans and closed out those positions. Oftentimes what we found is that they're really just a prelude, that if you're taking out a loan for 90 days for 50 k you're using the product to see how it works. What was the experience like? Did I feel good about it? Was Unchained easy to work with? And then it often rolls into a much larger loan for a longer time period. So are most of your customers taking the standard terms and not paying additional amounts against the principal? Correct. Interesting. Except for in the cases where they want to close out their loan because they like to take out more capital or they found the service was too stressful. I think some people, we're very sensitive to this. Some people shouldn't play with leverage. It's not something they're comfortable with. We had one customer that borrowed at a recent high. We had to do a call for additional maintenance, a collateral maintenance when the price diminished. And this customer, you know, God bless her, she she found it stressful and she was in a great position to do it. But you have to understand what you're doing. You have to sort of understand the risk that you're taking on. Like we're very careful to make sure that borrowers never borrow against the full amount of Bitcoin that they have. We want to make sure we're not a loan to own company and we're not trying to make out loans so that we can profit from default. You know, I think some people just aren't comfortable with having a lot of risk like this. And so in those cases, they have just paid down the principal and then gotten out of the loan. And that's totally fine. But in general, the folks who are comfortable with holding debt, who understand debt as a tool for financial management, who are taking out these loans, are doing it with a very specific purpose. They're looking at the numbers and saying, this makes all the sense in the world. 
and they're taking advantage of the fact, therefore, that the payments are interest only. Can you just walk us through your product? Like, what are the terms? What are the parameters of your offering? So we have a loan product that we extend to consumers and businesses in some 30 or 35 U.S. states. Exact details depend on loan amounts and rates and eligibility, but we're active through most of the country now. The terms we offer are, first of all, a 50% loan-to-value ratio. So if you would like to borrow, let's say, you know, $100,000, you need to give us $200,000 at the then price, the origination price, in collateral, so $200,000 in Bitcoin. You uh, apply for a loan online. We do our KYC AML process right online. You'll be approved typically within 24 hours. You apply for the loan. We generate legal documents like that are look very familiar to you. If you've ever had a mortgage or any other kind of debt vehicle or loan that you've taken, you sign them. We use DocuSign right now. So hopefully a very familiar experience for folks. And then when it's all said and done, you go ahead and you deposit your collateral. We provision a single address for you to use during the duration of your loan. That way you can be fairly confident that your collateral is remaining where it is. As soon as we receive the collateral, we send you a wire transfer with your loan amount to the bank account that you choose. Then you make monthly interest payments just on the interest amount that you're due. Loans could be between, I believe, $10,000 and a million dollars. We'll go past a million dollars in certain cases. We borrow from 90 days to, I think, three years. And I mentioned a couple of times casually, but the way we handle volatility is that we have a right to do collateral maintenance calls. Since we land at a 50% loan to value ratio, you've got $100,000 of cash for putting $200,000 of Bitcoin with us. If the Bitcoin price were to collapse by 25% and it was to reach, let's say, $150,000, we would issue the maintenance request. We'd ask you to either repay some of the principal or provide more collateral, your choice. Nothing happens automatically. Which one of those do you find people doing more often, giving more collateral? Usually putting in more collateral. We're very careful, again, to ensure that customers aren't borrowing against the full amount of Bitcoin that they hold. And usually for us, that's a risk flag. And it's also just so much easier to deposit more collateral, right? I mean, our average time, it's an interesting statistic. There's been two major price drops since we've been lending that we've had to do this for. And our average time to get more collateral is about an hour, which is pretty incredible. In one case, a customer provided more collateral in seven minutes. Wow. That's an amazing speed to recollateralize when... Yeah, they're like, don't sell my Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's funny. Customers are so on top of the price motion that they'll call us the night before. I feel like, am I good? <laughs> like, hey, man, I think it's going to happen tomorrow. And we're like, all right, dude, chill out. It's cool. If it happens, it'll happen. We'll call you. It's going to be easy. It's actually been very nice how informed our borrowers are about the price and their obligations, which makes sense. They don't want to lose their Bitcoin. So if it drops below, like if it depreciates more than 25%, then do they have to get back to... I think contractually, they have like 48 hours. And then if the price descends further, it's, I believe, a 45% price drop. So if that $200,000 in Bitcoin becomes, I believe, $110,000, if I did the math right, at that point, the loan is technically in default. And so we're allowed to repossess the collateral to pay for our principal obligations, liquidate it. And if there's any remainder, it goes back to the borrower. We're not allowed to keep any of it, and we don't intend to. When they refresh their collateral, they need to get back to having 2x what they're borrowing. Is that correct? That's usually the way we set it up. Though they're, of course, free to just repay some of the principal if they would prefer to do that. What's the interest rate? 
Typically, we're charging between 10 and 14%. Depends on the state and depends on the loan size and various other parameters. Oftentimes, we're constrained by the lending capital sources we have and the particular laws around lending in the states that we're active in. So we, we tend to just quote a broad range right that because it's a little bit too complicated to get more specific unless we really get into the particulars of each case. So we encourage borrowers, if that's a rate that you can tolerate, if you feel like that's fair for the liquidity that we're offering, get in touch. Let's find out if we can work together. And is there a service fee or what other fees exist in addition to interest? We charge a 1% origination fee, which is part of that 10 to 14% figure that I quoted previously. And most of the interest that we're charging is usually going back to our lending capital providers. I'll make a comment that if you think 10 to 14% is too high, you're a borrower and you're like, wow, that's a really high figure. I I don't know if that makes sense. Trust me, I'm talking to the lending capital providers and they're telling me 10 to 14% is way too low. Like, this is Bitcoin. It's risky. It should be way up here. And so it feels to me like that's, we're not in control of the rates. That's just what the money markets, so to speak, are willing to lend at Bitcoin at. And demonstrably, borrowers are borrowing at those rates. So I kind of feel like market dynamics have calculated the effective interest rate band. I mean, one thing I really like about having other competitors in market like Salt and a few others is that it's only going to act to decrease the rates to borrowers, which I'm a big fan of. I'm a Bitcoin holder. I want this to be cheaper for Bitcoin holders. As a company, I also think that being able to access lower cost capital for crypto as collateral is a great way for us to start being able to engineer new classes of financial instruments beyond just loans, which would require those low costs of capital. So 10 to 14% is where we're at right now, inclusive of all our fees. Let's talk about future roadmaps. So when you think about you know what's coming down the pike, it seems like there's different routes you can go down, a whole bunch of them, and you've thought about this a lot, I'm sure. Do you see yourself ever lending crypto assets in exchange for other crypto assets? In other words, if I want to sell my Bitcoin to get Ether, that can generate a taxable event. But if I take out a loan, it doesn't have to be a taxable event. Is, is that something you think you'll do? Or if you could just share with us your thoughts on future roadmap, that would be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Lending against Bitcoin as a form of collateral is sort of the zeroth and very first and laser focused place that we started. But you're right. Our ambition is to go, I think, quite a bit more broadly than that. Absolutely, we want to accept other forms of cryptocurrency as collateral. So we already have Ethereum working internally. We have a goal this quarter to do kind of a bug bounty around our Ethereum multi-sig contracts, which we're going to open source so folks can feel comfortable putting their Ethereum with us when they borrow. We anticipate having done Ethereum that will expand to ERC-20 tokens and other kinds of assets as customers demand them. So there's sort of that direction in which we'd like to expand. I think what you're asking about is also really interesting. Instead of just doing crypto for cash loans, we could do crypto to crypto loans. And that's also really compelling and interesting for a certain class of customers. And it's a very natural extension past the product we're already delivering. But I would say that our ambitions, I think, are even more broad than that, that we're not unchained lending because we don't view ourselves as truly just a lender. Even in becoming a lender, what we realized is we had to develop a lot of expertise and software around custody, that multi-sig, cold storage, hardware wallet-backed, super safe storage of crypto assets at scale is not a solved or easy problem. And we had to do too much work, frankly, to get to where we are. And that helped us realize that in building a lending company, we've actually built a custodial company almost, that we've had to solve those problems. And so that creates an interesting another set of possible products for us is to, we're already in conversations now with certain crypto funds and various other people that would like to store assets securely is, can we build a really nice practice around multi-organization, multi-sig cold storage, which I view as the safest possible way to hold Bitcoin. 
or any other crypto asset. And especially in the case of lending, it's very compelling. We have three parties, lender, borrower, and originator, namely Unchained. It makes all the sense in the world to, instead of having Unchained hold all the keys to the multi-sig quorum, which is what is our current model, to federate those keys so that borrower, lender, and ourselves have a key that creates a very nice two of three structure. If we're out of the picture of the borrower and the lender can get together to free the collateral, if the borrower disappears, the lender and ourselves, the originator can still repossess the collateral to pay off principal obligations. If the lender disappears, it's okay. The borrower and ourselves can still act, right? It's And pairwise, all the parties in this quorum are incentivized to behave correctly. So it's a perfect use case for multi-sig. You know, it strikes me that a bank in a lot of ways is a value-added custodian you're a custodian that happens to take advantage of these custodial services to offer a loan product, but there could be a lot of other products that you could offer in addition to loans once you have custody of someone's funds. What other potential services would you offer once you have custody or is that information confidential right now? Yeah, custodianship, you're right. It's like a very central problem. If you can do custodianship well, you can do many, many things around it well. If you don't do custodianship well, I think it's very difficult to offer any of these kinds of services without just partnering. And I think that's a perfectly okay solution too, to say, well, we just use Coinbase for everything. That's fine. But in our opinion, you know, Coinbase is designed for scale and massive transactions and in theory, speed of response. We are designed for safety and multiple people having to be signing off on every single cash outflow. It's a little bit of a different philosophical architecture for the company as well as the technology. So I think it's more natural for certain use cases than others. But you're right, custodianship is pretty central. If we can do custodianship well, as we're already doing, we can offer loans as we're already doing, but we can start to offer many, many more interesting products beyond that. That's a really interesting path to go down. It kind of strikes me that in some ways, a Bitcoin hedge fund that takes in-kind investments, in other words, you know, a hedge fund that takes BTC and then invests it for you, right? they have to do a lot of custodial work as well. That's kind of a value-added custodian <laughs> also, except in, you know, instead of providing you a loan, they're investing on your behalf. Absolutely. I mean, and I think you're right. Thinking of banks as value-added custodians is really appropriate. I mean, that's what banks in theory should be. They should be competing to create the most value for the folks whose funds they custody. That In practice, that may not always be what happens. But I think what's cool about crypto is because of how forkable and changeable and fast-moving everything is, there is a focus on delivering value to end customers. Have you considered being a prime broker? Am I interested in being a prime broker? I'm not sure. Me again to explain what Prime Brokerage is. Prime Brokerage is a set of services that investment banks usually offer to institutional hedge funds. These services can include things like securities lending, so a fund can, for example, short a stock, global custody, and also financing. I asked Drew if he was interested in being a Prime Broker because I think that a lot of what he does could be packaged as a set of Prime Brokerage services to crypto hedge funds. But that's a topic for another conversation. Back to the program. I think one of the challenges we have is as you get larger in the financial industry, your regulation and compliance loads become ever larger. This touches on the idea of service versus technology versus infrastructure. Do we really want to, as a small startup, sign on for the costs of becoming a broker dealer or dealing with large financial institutions at that scale? We may want to partner for those kinds of services and be more of a technology and infrastructure kind of thought leader that's allowing these massively capitalized big players to do this stuff safely and well. One thing that we have that you know other larger players don't have is a lot of knowledge built from being in the dirt with crypto technology for several years and building stuff ourselves. 
But today, where we're starting out, we've had to do everything ourselves. And I think that's also appropriate. We've got to show that we understand how the financial industry works by participating in it from the ground up and that it does include all the regulation compliance workloads that we have today. How long from the time someone applies for a loan to you know receiving cash in hand, how long is that process? It can be as short as a day or two. The longest part is honestly sometimes waiting for the wire transfer to clear. It really just depends on how familiar the customer is with our own process. Have they borrowed with us before? Or do they have access to all the funds they're going to use for collateral? Is the Bitcoin network congested that day? It can take up to a week. You know, If the customer wants to review documentation, they want to consult with their lawyer. This is the first time they've ever taken out a loan on a crypto asset. And that's fine. We, we totally understand that. We're never trying to rush customers through the process. But it can go very, very quickly. If you know what to expect in the documentation and you've got your funds ready, we can move very fast. Are your docs pretty squeaky clean? Like if people have looked, are familiar with loan docs, are yours you know, pretty simple, pretty short to the point? Or is there a lot of extra language that's been added you know, because you're dealing with this new and somewhat unfamiliar asset class, at least to the traditional banking system? That's a great question. So I don't know that much about what traditional loan documents look like anyway, but I do know that there's a set of like sort of what's required. And then there's what you do to make this make more sense for crypto assets. There's a lot of disclaimers and stuff that will be in the contract that we're just required to have there. And so in that sense, it's very similar to any existing loan that you might have in which you're going to have similar kinds of documents. But I would say the heart of our loan documents is really what we call a kind of a cover letter. You're really just in very clear language that even I as an engineer can understand describes what is about to happen. Like you are this person, you are agreeing essentially to grant us a lien. It's not our property, but to grant us a lien on the collateral that you're going to place into this address that we provision for you. It's going to be between this time and this time. You're going to pay exactly this much. Here's your exact APR. Here's the cost of this credit to you and various other things we're required to say. We describe our uh, collateral maintenance process. We describe how prepayment. Our loan documents, I think, are only two pages. There are, I think, some interesting aspects to this when I think about how we've had to adapt some of the language in there for cryptocurrencies in particular. I think the concept of forking is also really interesting. That's not a thing that traditionally happens with assets that are collateral. You don't suddenly fork. I guess there are stock splits, but if you have a home equity line of credit, your house doesn't suddenly become two houses with different paint colors, you know? And so I think that's an interesting aspect that, you know, obviously customers always own the funds that they put in. If there's a fork, you get your tokens back. It's difficult for us to, of course, guarantee any kind of timescale around that. Hey, it's me. I should probably explain what this fork thing is. Essentially, Dhruv is saying that if a crypto asset that they've been holding for you as collateral experiences a fork, like when Bitcoin Cash forked off from the Bitcoin blockchain, they send you your tokens from the forked chain. So, for example, during the Bitcoin Cash fork, they would send you your Bitcoin Cash. Of course, they can't always do this until it's technologically safe and possible. But when those tokens are available, they'll give them back to you. That's it. A lot of times that's just a practicality issue around what software is available. So there are some interesting angles like that. But on the whole, man, our documents are pretty easy. How many pages total in length are there? And what percentage do you think you would be able to cut if you weren't doing crypto loans? If we weren't doing crypto loans and we're doing traditional lending, almost everything that's in there would still have to be in there. There's only a few places that we've we've really changed the process to specialize it for cryptocurrency. Like for example, the concept of address or the concept of forks. Like these are things that are crypto unique though. So we have a few lines and paragraphs around them. But by and large, like from a legal and compliance perspective, we are an asset-based lender. 
and our documents look like any other asset-based lenders, and they're about as short and as sweet as you could get if you were doing asset-based lending. They aren't tremendously more complex because of cryptocurrency. So the vast majority of the wording would be exactly the same if you were issuing loans against someone's house or something like that. Yeah, I don't think it's a stretch to say that we, in fact, modeled most of those documents on those kinds of asset-based loans, because that really is the category of product that we sell. What do you think providers of traditional loans, for example, loans against your house, what do you think they envy about your business? And what do you envy about their business? What do I envy about them? Certainly, I envy how they can take for granted people's attitude towards the kind of collateral that they're working with, right? They like don't even read the docs. They're like, all right, I get it. They sign it. <laughs> I get it. These are homes. I'm buying a bundle of 10,000 homes. I get it. You know, It's almost casual the way that people regard other kinds of assets. And the scrutiny that they put upon new kinds of assets like cryptocurrency, it's fair. It's absolutely deserved and it's fair, but it can make life more difficult. So I'm certainly envious of that. I'm also envious of the scale of the market that they're entering. Crypto is a tremendously large market now. It's hundreds of billions of dollars in size. And the addressable market for loans is many tens of billions, I'm sure, within that space. But the addressable market size for student loans in dollars is like, I think, a trillion dollars or more. It's just everyone is in the regular loan industry. And still, relatively few people are in the crypto loan industry. But that's also exciting, right? That means that we're in early days. And in theory, the ecosystem is poised to expand, and it's all going to be gravy. So that's what I'm envious about. What would they be envious about me? On some level, I want to say the rates, because I believe we offer a very safe form of lending. It's akin to a margin loan in which we're literally holding the collateral or have access to the collateral that we're using to guarantee the loan. It's secured. It's very safe. Our collateral, as I've described, we could obtain more within minutes when we need to. It's automatic and digital. There's no downtime. There's no closed markets. So in that sense, it's a very safe form of collateral. Yet our interest rates are 10 and 14%. So there's a premium that I believe lenders are getting for choosing to accept the risk stigma around cryptocurrencies. I believe the actual risk is lower. I'm not saying cryptocurrencies aren't volatile or that there aren't some existential risks associated with them. There absolutely are. And that's, I think, what drives the premium. But I know a lot of lenders who love the idea of 10 to 14% rates and love the idea of quick collateralization and digitally recording the rights to everything and all the cash flows and all the accounting. That's pretty compelling. So in other words, like if a bank needs to possess a house, that's a very costly thing to do but they're getting a much lower interest rate. Like you can't just walk in and uh, like possess a house or possess a boat. These are very complicated things to do. Correct. Whereas, you know, if someone defaults on their loan, actually selling their Bitcoin is pretty easy. (laughs) Yeah, it's done within minutes. And you make more. One thing that you said to me really stood out, which is you give people access to the address where their Bitcoin is stored so they can monitor at all times to make sure that their Bitcoin, which they in fact own, is still there. Is that correct? You know, they can monitor it, they can watch it, that kind of thing? That's exactly how it works. I mean, I'm a Bitcoin holder. I'm nervous about storing my funds on exchanges. I don't trust third parties. I trust myself. I trust my hardware wallet. And I recognize that a lot of Bitcoin holders are like that. So what we have today is about as good as we can do as a single organization. You have to trust us. We hold all the keys, but there are multiple keys. It's a hardware wallet. It's cold storage, et cetera. The reason we display addresses is because since we know that you don't really have any rights to this cryptocurrency when you give it to us, at least 
from a controls perspective, you have legal rights. In theory, there's nothing preventing our entire company from turning tail and stealing all your coins and some colluding event. And I mean, we would never do it. It's absurd, but you don't know that. And so as a concession, what we like to do is we like to provision a single address that the customer can use when they deposit their collateral and the collateral will remain in that address the entire duration of the loan. We don't recycle collateral. We don't reuse it to fund other projects. We don't lend out the Bitcoin that you gave us to other people in order to make more money. It literally just sits there and it serves as collateral. You can watch it through our website. You can watch it through any third-party block explorer you want. And it's our concession to you because we understand that you're giving up control. This coming quarter, as part of our custody solution, we want to release that multi-organization, multi-sig custody model in which we can do better. Instead of just showing you the address, but we've got all the keys, we'll show you the address and we'll give you one of the keys. And we'll give our lending provider another key and then we'll be left with the third. And that creates a really interesting situation where no one organization really has unilateral control over the funds in that address. But as I mentioned, pairwise, lender and borrower and Unchained as the originator are pairwise all incentivized to do the right thing. Do you find that your lending provider takes comfort also in having the addresses so they can sort of monitor that the Bitcoin is there to back up the amount that they've given you? Are they looking at that also? Yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of trust, like there's legal paperwork, obviously, between our lending capital providers and ourselves, which describes the class of loans they're sort of agreed to buy as we originate them. It's pretty cut and dry. But I know that part of the reason they feel comfortable signing such agreements in the first place is because they can see the collateral. They know that we're, we're not some fly by night operation, like they can verify that those funds exist on the blockchain. Who's your lending provider? Like, is it a high net worth individual that just believes in the space or... How does that work? Yeah, our lending capital providers right now are high net worth individuals and small institutions, typically those that understand Bitcoin rather deeply, got into it somewhat early, have Bitcoin themselves, but also have a lot of traditional cash. And because of that, I think they recognize the enormity of the problem that we're solving and how how attractive a loan product can be for Bitcoin holders. I think as we grow, we'll turn to actual capital markets to raise larger sums of lending capital to go out there and operate with. But so far, this is where we have been. Are you open to sharing with us the amount that you've lent thus far? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I can absolutely say we've got a few dozen customers and our loan book is now a multi-million dollar loan book. We have about $10 million in lending capital remaining to lend out before we go out and raise more. And we're actively doing that because we're originating loans at a pretty exciting pace right now. So if you look at kind of the run right here, you're going <laughs> to you're gonna need to raise more here soon. That's awesome. Congrats. That's a good problem to have though, right? That's what we keep telling ourselves. It's, it's kind of fun as a, as a startup. You know, we do equity fundraising for obviously our own company. Since we don't have a token or anything like that, that's how we pay for things. But then we also have to do fundraising for lending capital. And the investors that fund equity are very different than the investors that fund loans. They want totally different things. They care about totally different things. So as an entrepreneur, it becomes kind of a, a whole nother workload to bear. But it's actually really interesting to talk to investors that are trying to access a rate of return as compared to investors who are trying to access some crazy multiple at some point. Very different attitudes. And I sometimes think how ironic it is that we're bringing cryptocurrency, which is a very you know multiples-oriented industry into the world of traditional capital, which is a very give me a fixed dependable rate of return industry. But I actually think it kind of makes sense because I think the two kind of need each other right now. 
yeah, crypto investors are, are interested in X's and traditional investors are interested in like percentage points, which is insane. Exactly. Can you tell us a little bit about your operations? How many people are on your team? Where do you spend most of your time? Yeah, sure. Our team is still really, really small. We're a lean company and we like to focus as much as we can on taking the funds we've raised and plowing them into our products and our marketing and not necessarily our own staff salaries. But unfortunately or fortunately, our customer base is growing. The rate at which we are having to write code and support our product, it's growing. And so we are hiring now. We're up to, I think, six people full time. And we've got some interns and a few contractors, but our team is still small. It's less than 10 people. We're headquartered in Austin, but we spend a lot of time on the coast, as you can imagine. That's where a lot of fundraising comes from for both lending and equity capital, as well as where a lot of Bitcoin and crypto owners live. And so we're often in San Francisco and New York. When it comes to applying for loans, there might be some folks listening to this that might want to take out a loan. Are there less credit requirements because it's a collateralized loan? You know, is it if you have the Bitcoin and you seem like you're pretty good on paper, is it very likely that you'll get approved if you're going to put the funds to pretty good use? Right. So we don't actually perform a credit check. We are a loan originator, and therefore it means we're essentially underwriting the loans that we offer. But our underwriting model, if you want, is very simplistic, that it really is essentially weighted by the collateral. If you have sufficient collateral, we're likely to lend to you. We don't necessarily need to know your credit score or too much else about you because we feel like the collateral is a pretty safe asset for us. I mean, in some sense, that's the core idea we're bringing to market is the idea that Bitcoin is safe collateral, despite its volatility, despite everything else about it. With that said, we won't lend to anybody at all who shows up with Bitcoin because obviously we don't want to lend to terrorists or criminals or people who obtain their Bitcoin in illicit ways. We want to make sure that borrowers have some kind of income or asset ownership outside of Bitcoin. So just so they can afford the interest payments, because then our questions are like, you know, how are you going to pay for this loan that you're about to take from us? So we want to make sure that those basic obligations are present. And then there's also just kind of a look and feel check like, Bitcoin is a shady industry. Let's just say it out loud. Parts of it are. Parts of it are, sure. Because there are definitely people that are out there who would love to take a loan because it would help them clean dirty money that they've stolen or obtained in in horrific ways. I'm not blind to the darker sides of the crypto world. And so there's a certain sense in which, you know, we are the originators that's on us. We're really asking ourselves, like, does this make sense? This person acquired Bitcoin in this year. They do this for work. Here they are on Facebook. Here's what we know about them. Here's what the databases that the government you know, gives us access to say about these people. Like, everything looks copacetic. I believe this story. I can make this loan. We definitely have rejected loans that clearly look like they're coming from people who are in the black market or who obtain Bitcoin in some way that they're unwilling to describe and they're not really willing to give us details about themselves. No, we won't lend to people like that. We're interested in growing our loan book, but there's a safe way to to lend. And then there's, a, I think, an overly eager and desperate way to do it. And we're much more excited about being a long-lasting, successful company. And I think whatever scrutinies are on the crypto world today, there's going to be more. And I want to be able to proudly say that, look, we followed every possible regulation and we went above and beyond in making sure that the customers we're interacting with are legit people that bought Bitcoin or mined it or earned it in a real way that they're real participating members of the economy. And that's why we're actually growing things. I mean, I think the macro picture for us is, look, if these people are borrowing, they're borrowing why? To build homes, to buy stuff, to fix things, to make more stuff. And that helps the economy. And if Bitcoin is this thing that just sits on the side here being speculative, 
that is a bubble. It's going to collapse. It's going to it's going to explode one day. But if Bitcoin starts getting all these inroads and bridges into parts of the economy that it's helping to support, it's interacting with, it's helping to grow. And economics is not a zero sum game, right? Things can grow together. And if Bitcoin is well networked into the traditional economy, then I think it has even more staying power and it's an even more powerful asset class to be exposed to. So that's kind of our macro pictures. We want this to grow, but we're unwilling to sacrifice by working with shady people in the short term just to see that happen. Do you do any kind of analysis of where the funds have come? Like, do you use a service like Chainalysis to make sure that it hasn't like floated through dark pools or, you know, it's not from the Mt. Gox hack or tied to Silk Road funds or... Do you do any kind of check to make sure that it's not dirty money or hasn't been dirty money in the past? We do not do any kind of hard checks. Like we don't do independent research to follow backwards your Bitcoin trail through the blockchain. We ask you, we ask you to self-report. We know your name and address and a lot of other information about you that you're also reporting. And as I said, it's partly looking and checking in databases that real law enforcement is tasked with you know, maintaining and, and keeping current. And partly it is look and feel. Like if we feel that there's no way a person who describes this as their history has that much Bitcoin without something else happening, we'll ask for more information. We'll say, we don't believe this. How did, how did you come to own this stuff? If we can't get a good story out of it, we're unlikely to lend. People are very forthcoming. If you got Bitcoin legitimately and you want to now use it to do all these great things, None of our customers have pushed back on that idea. No one has said, well, I'd, I would love to tell you, but it's not any of your business. Presumably those customers who do feel that way, and it's fine to feel that way, are just not coming to us. If you're coming to us, it's because you do want to work with us and you know that we're a real company and you're expecting to be asked questions about your financial history and your personal identity. And you're more than eager to make us feel good by telling us everything you can to de-risk the loan for us. But short story, we do not do any kind of chain analysis or any official credit score analysis or anything like that. In that sense, our underwriting model is somewhat simple. Do you have the collateral? Can you tell us a good story about how you got the collateral? Do we believe you? Does the government say you check out in various ways that we need to run by them? Do you have any last words for our audience? Maybe I'll go with our motto. Friends don't let friends sell Bitcoin. If you are thinking about doing something special in your life, you want to make an investment, you want to buy something, you want to realize some gains, maybe think about borrowing. It could be a tool that you know, you've used elsewhere in your life. Maybe you're seeing it for the first time in this context. Reach out, learn. You will find one of us on the phone talking to you and telling you about our product. We want to hear from you. If you're not interested, if you don't like our service, tell us why. We're building it for you. So the more we understand about what you want, the better it will be. So do reach out. Yeah, it strikes me that if you opt to take a loan against your Bitcoin instead of selling it, it's quite possible that you could find yourself in a situation where you actually never have to pay capital gains against your Bitcoin if you take out a loan for a long enough term and if you're getting a paycheck every month and can actually pay off not only the interest but the principal over a period of time, then you'll you'll never have to take those capital gains, which is a, a potentially cool place to find yourself in. That said, none of this should be taken as tax advice. I'm not a financial planner or advisor. Thank you for all your insights. Thank you for sharing your business model with us and appreciate having you on. Thanks for the opportunity, Clay. This was really fun. That's it for this week. To sign up for our free crypto investing newsletter, listen to other episodes, or get the show notes from this episode, please visit flippening.com. I also invite you to check out the startup that funds this podcast, Nomics, spelled N-O-M-I-C-S, at nomics.com. 
Finally, if you got value from the show, the biggest thing you can do to help us out is to leave a five-star review with some comments and feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening and see you next week.